Exocast. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. Um, as always, I'm Hugh and I'm joined by Andrew and Hannah. And this month on Exocast 44B, we're going to be talking to Dr. Sarah Casewell about irradiated brown dwarfs. Uh, but also feel free to check out this month's other episodes, Exocast 44C, where we try to answer the question, can we ever image the surface of an exoplanet? And Exocast 44D, where we're covering all the latest news from the last month. Um, but now we're joined by another pioneering exoplanet researcher. So over to Hannah to introduce them. Yeah, we're really excited this month. Uh, we are joined by Dr. Sarah Casewell, the Ernest Rutherford Fellow at the University of Leicester, where she has been since her undergrad PhD a series of postdocs and management roles. Uh, she's also a, a leading expert in brown dwarf observations and analysis, uh, a fabulous knitter and an astro mum. So Sarah, thank you for coming onto the show and joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Very excited uh, to start talking about all of the different things, uh, including, you know, working from home, being an astro mom. Uh, but I think we'll leave that to a little bit later in the show uh, and start off with some of the science. So I want to dive right into that. And could you explain to us and our listeners what it is that you work on and what exactly is an irradiated brown dwarf um, and how might that be different from the standard exoplanet systems that we talk about on the show? Okay, so brown dwarfs are more massive than exoplanets in general, and they're thought to form like stars as opposed to planets. So they form from a, a binary star mechanism, not in a disk around a star as a planet would. This means they have higher internal heat than a planet. There's no sort of rocky core or rocky anything in the middle. They're all gas. And they're degenerate objects, so they hold up by electron degeneracy pressure uh, against gravity. They don't have enough mass to burn anything. So there's no hydrogen fusing into helium like a star. And this pressure holds them up once they form. And basically that's it. They form and they cool forever, forever essentially. Forever and ever. Forever and ever and ever. Uh, they shrink slightly as they cool, as they lose some energy. They get They get smaller and sort of everything gets hugged tighter together. But that's basically it. What kind of what kind of size are they then? So if you're saying there's something like between what the sun and and a planet, are we talk are we talking about something the size of the sun or so they're physically the size of Jupiter, give or take, with so mass small. pretty small, with masses of between about thirteen and seventy Jupiter masses. So small and compact. Small and compact relatively speaking, for stellar objects. But I, I guess, as with most things in astronomy, there's a bit of a, a spectrum, right, that, that, that spans the brown dwarfs. And I had to uh, remind myself of the different spectral classes for brown dwarfs, right? And you work on, on two in particular, kind of, kind of the new big shots, uh, you know, spectral classes. Can you tell us a little bit more about those in particular? The, is it the L and the T dwarfs that you work on specifically? Or? Yeah, sure. So because brown dwarfs, because there's sort of this remnants of star formation, once they form, they cool. And this means that they are cool enough to harbor molecules in their atmospheres. So they sort of fit in after the M dwarfs in the standard spectral sequence. And then you have L dwarfs, which are sort of about 
maybe 2,000 Kelvin down to about 1,000 Kelvin in temperature. And they've got atmospheres that are dominated by carbon monoxide and clouds, basically, like we see on the Earth and in Jupiter. And these can be water clouds or clouds of metal hydrides. So things like titanium oxide, vanadium oxide, stuff that we do suspect should be in exoplanet atmospheres, for instance. All the fun stuff. All the fun stuff. <laughs> That's got Han excited. This sort of gets referred to as dust in general in, in these atmospheres. And as a brand dwarf cools, at some point, this dust clouds, it rains out or it sinks below the photosphere. We don't entirely know how this happens. And you're left with what sort of gets described as a non-cloudy or a clear atmosphere that's dominated by methane. And these are the T dwarfs. So the L dwarfs have all the metal hydrides and the carbon monoxide. And then as it cools, you get a T dwarf where all the carbon monoxide and the water sort of get together and mix everything up and you end up with methane instead. And these are the T dwarfs and these are very cool. And literally there is their atmosphere is dominated by the methane. When you look at their spectrum, you just have huge bands of methane absorption and not very much else. And then even cooler still, but you have to move to sort of the mid-infrared for these, are the wide dwarfs. Uh, the wide dwarfs, start, you start to see absorption from ammonia in their atmosphere. And, and the wide dwarfs are the nearest we have to Jupiter in terms of spectra, essentially. But what, what you study are these special kind of brown dwarfs called irradiated brown dwarfs. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit about what makes them so special? So my brown dwarfs are special because they are close enough to something that's significantly heating their atmosphere. So these objects are rare in general. There is a, a slightly odd phenomenon called the brown dwarf desert. And this basically says that you don't get brown dwarfs orbiting main sequence stars within about 3 AU. So essentially where we find all the hot Jupiters, mm -hmm. we don't find any brown dwarfs. And this is thought to be because of the formation mechanisms. So you can form your hot Jupiter from your disk around the star. But if you want to form a brown dwarf next to the star from a binary star mechanism, that's quite tricky because you're forming one giant thing and a tiny thing. And it's, it's yeah, it's awkward. So there are only about... 23 of these known orbiting main sequence stars within about 3AU at the moment and most of them have come from planet surveys. Now the problem in general with looking at these is they're actually harder to observe than hot Jupiters because the brown dwarf has higher mass and this electron degeneracy pressure means they're physically smaller than a hot Jupiter is. They don't puff up in the same way. So you can't do things like transit spectroscopy where you're trying to look through the limb of the, the planet mm -hmm. because there's just not as much limb. Right. So that makes life tricky. The objects I study are essentially the evolved form of this. So they've been through, um, they've had a bit of a rough ride, realistically. The, the star has come to the end of its life. It's stopped burning its fuel and it's turned into a giant. And the brown dwarf is orbiting close enough that the giant has swallowed the brown dwarf. So this is a bit like what we think might happen to the Earth, essentially, when the sun becomes a giant. The brown dwarf then spirals inwards. And obviously, there are two options here. One, it dies a horrible, fiery death on the core of the star. We never, we never know it existed. Or two, uh, the envelope of the giant gets ejected, planetary nebula, 
and you're left with a white dwarf, which is the the remains of the core of the star, mm-hmm. with a brown dwarf in a very close orbit, sort of like a few hours orbit. So these are the objects I study. They're pretty rare. We only know of about nine of them. Wow. Uh, okay. Yeah. Is that because they're hard to find or they just don't exist? It's a bit of both. So if you think we only know about 23 hot-ish Jupiters orbiting main sequence stars, and then a portion of those have to survive the death of their star, right? you, you can imagine we're not going to end up with very many. Mm-hmm. And in terms of finding them, it's maybe not as difficult as you think. So white dwarfs are physically small. They're like Earth-sized. They're very dense. And they're generally quite luminous because they're hot. So if you imagine your, mm-hmm. your star dies, you get your, your, the hot burning core bit is the bit that's been left over. So they primarily radiate in the ultraviolet or the optical. Mm -hmm. So we can find them because they're what we would call blue in color on your HR diagram. They're off to the left with the sort of the negative magnitude color. And we can find them and then we, we look at what their spectral energy distribution looks like in all sorts of other wavelengths. And because they essentially look like a black body in terms of their spectrum, yeah. Once you get to the longer wavelengths, so sort of 1.6, 2 microns, if they have a red companion, a brown dwarf or an M dwarf companion, then you suddenly start to see, um, they start getting brighter again because you're not seeing the white dwarf there, you're seeing the brown dwarf. So white dwarfs are not massively difficult to find. So it is literally just a case of finding all the white dwarfs we can and then looking for ones that look too red. The, the the kicker to that is that quite a lot of these white dwarfs are about 18th magnitude in the optical, so it can be difficult. And finding eclipsing systems is tricky because if you're moving a Jupiter mass, a, a Jupiter-sized thing in front of an Earth-sized thing, you get a complete total eclipse, but it only lasts about five minutes if you're in a two-hour orbit. So trying to catch things like that, even with something like Tep- Kepler or TESS, is really hard. I mean, conceptually, just thinking about that, we're talking about a star the size of the Earth with a Jupiter orbiting on two hours. Yeah. If we imagine that in our sky, how massive would that be? Like, that's that's multiple times the size of the moon, surely. Yeah, it's, it's huge. That's huge and it's daunting to think huge. about. Just trying to imagine these things. They're just, it's kind of, it's crazy to think about. And it's so difficult sometimes for us to even think about these hot Jupiters, but this is a whole nother level that we're talking about, right? Yeah. When I, when I started talking about these at exoplanet conferences, I would get a lot of well-meaning people come up to me and say that I misspoke and I did mean two days, didn't I? Because two hours was ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot, a lot of the work that you've done is to try and understand these objects a little bit more and that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is mostly done with the ground-based telescopes. Yeah. What kinds of things are you doing? You can't do transmission spectroscopy like you described. So what are you, what are you doing to learn about them with these observations? So primarily, sort of once we've detected them, the easiest thing to do to start off with is to get radial velocities for 
the white dwarf and white dwarfs have these beautiful broad hydrogen lines so that's generally quite easy and light curves give us the uh, also give us the period because we get what's called a re reflection effect because the systems are tidally locked so you see a brightening as you see the, the heated side of the brown dwarf and then it sort of dims slightly as you see the darker side so by looking at those light curves or what exoplanet people would generally call phase curves and then subtracting the the white dwarfs because the white dwarf doesn't generally vary and white dwarfs are very well modeled we have excellent models for things like their mass their radius they generally are beautifully predictable and so subtracting the white dwarf contribution means we're left with um, a phase curve where we can basically calculate the brightness temperature for the day and the night side of of the brown dwarf. Um, for some of these these systems, then, yeah, we end up with day-night side differences of 500 Kelvin, not dissimilar to what you, you see in some exoplanets. What we can do if we have an eclipsing system, though, is because the brown dwarf has some heat of its own, but not a lot, when it passes in front of the white dwarf, that's a non-zero measurement. We can detect the dark side of the brown dwarf directly. And that measurement gives us a little bit more idea as to what's happening on the dark side of the brown dwarf. It would be wonderful at some point to be able to actually get a spectrum of what's happening there. But we have five minute eclipses, so it's, you know, not going to happen anytime soon, I feel. But... To actually know what's what's going on, on the dark side of the brown dwarf would be really cool. Back when I, I started working on these systems, there was sort of an assumption that we could just model the dark side of the brown dwarf as a later type um, spectral type than mm -hmm. the day side. So we could just sort of say, oh, it's fine. It's an L4 on the day side and an L8 on the night side. And we'll just sort of stick them together. But because things have now moved on so much, we've got um, global circulation models and all sorts of, of things where we can actually start to say, okay, well, what happens with heat? Does it move from the day to the night side? Do we get crazy wind speeds and jets and all this sort of really cool stuff? So I'm really excited that we're moving in that direction for these objects. So you said before how brown dwarfs are effectively, they don't produce their own heat, they, they cool off over time. Yeah. So I'm wondering whether a brown dwarf next to a, uh, whether the, all of the energy from within, you know, from the, with it, like all of the temperature on the brown dwarf is because of the irradiation. And does that mean it's basically the same as a hot Jupiter, like except for the mass? Um, no. So brown dwarfs, although they cool as they form, they basically have a non-negligible heat to start off with. So if you, you take some of my objects and um you know if they'd have formed away from an object they would be um an l6 or an l8 brown dwarf with a temperature of 1200 1300 kelvin something like that so it's unlike a hot jupiter the the brown dwarf's internal heat um, right. sort of its intrinsic heat if you like is is non-negligible and this is why we can see the dark side of the brown dwarf in these these eclipsing systems right right so it's not because there's heat being moved around it's because it has its internal heat still so there is that as well so if you think that you're putting something even something that's i don't know 1300 kelvin next to a 13,000 kelvin white dwarf in a two-hour orbit it's still 
it's still getting a, a significant amount of heat. So yeah, your, your day side is, is getting heated up. The question then is, is your night side simply the intrinsic heat of the brown dwarf? Or is there, as you said, heat transport from that heated side around? And what might that mean, particularly if it's an L dwarf, where you've got all these these clouds with all these these metal hydrides and stuff what on earth's happening there you know are they splitting up on the day side and then reforming on the night side or you know what's going on and the answer at the moment is realistically we don't know but <laughs> i would love to find out how old are these brown dwarfs that are orbiting these white dwarfs have they not been through the same lifetime as the original star and therefore will have cooled off over time what so basically what's the cooling time scale between these different types of brown dwarfs that you've described so white dwarfs are extremely handy um, chronological devices. So we can calculate how long the white dwarf has been cooling for. And then you can use things like um, an, what we'd call an initial mass final mass relation to figure out um, how massive the progenitor would have been. These are normally derived from white dwarfs in clusters where you actually know how long it will have spent on the main sequence before it became a white dwarf. And then you can sort of wind everything back. In general, these objects, because none of the white dwarfs I'm looking at here are particularly hot. The hottest one I have is 25,000 Kelvin, and that is not hot for a white dwarf by any stretch of the imagination. So uh, these are generally a few, a few giga years, sort of you know, anywhere between about three or four to ten. So in general, they are old. And realistically, we don't actually know what happens during what we call the common envelope phase. Where it's sitting inside the star. That's it. So you can imagine that there's not a lot of stuff around it. If you think that the sun has one solar mass and the white dwarf that the sun is going to become probably has about 0.6 solar masses. So that's 0.4 solar masses. You're expanding from where the sun is now to somewhere between the Earth and Mars. You can imagine that's not a massively dense envelope that Mm -hmm. you are inside. The problem is that that common envelope science is really hard, basically. (laughs) It's really hard, and I don't fully understand it, and I massively admire the people who know what they're talking (laughs) about here. But um, essentially, we don't know what happens. So a lot depends on how long the white dwarf, spe- the brown dwarf spends inside this envelope and how quickly the envelope gets ejected once the brown dwarf gets engulfed. Maybe the brown dwarf causes the envelope to get engulfed. A lot of these white dwarfs are very, very low mass, which seems to indicate that they've been, their evolution's basically been truncated, which would suggest that they swallow the brown dwarf, which makes the envelope go a bit wibbly. And it gets ejected. But realistically, we don't we don't know. It's hard to figure this stuff out. And the timescales involved astronomically are very, very short. So it's, you know, we, we don't know what happens there. But it's perhaps possible that the brown dwarf has been perhaps revitalized. Maybe it's, it's accreted a tiny bit of mass. Maybe it's been heated up a little bit. We don't really know. The... The most difficult thing for me at the moment looking at these objects is we don't really know what the effect of that ultraviolet from the white dwarf is on the brown dwarf atmosphere. And a lot of the time that's, I think, because exoplanet models sort of neglect it 
because it's yes, not relevant. We're starting to realize that we need to understand that too. Don't worry. For a lot of stars, it's not massively relevant. Yeah. But for white dwarfs, it's quite hugely relevant. And certainly early on, I talk to people and they'd be like, no, I'd love to, love to run my models for this, love to run my models for this. Send me, I send the parameters and then they basically go, oh, no, no, no. I don't have like any opacities for that wavelength range. I can't help you. <laughs> so I know things are, things are getting better in in that respect and it's my it's mainly i think being driven by people looking at habitability on m dwarfs and looking for the effects of uv flares and that sort of stuff and it's it's now the line list and the opacities are are sort of useful for me as well what what is it that drew you to these irradiated brown dwarfs there's so few of them that doesn't make it particularly easy to study them what is, what is it that draws you to them there's just i don't know there's just something absolutely fascinating about them i I got captured by brown dwarfs when I was doing my PhD and uh, sort of my PhD interviews and I sort of went around and I was like, yeah, I want to do a PhD. Some of these projects sound really interesting. <laughs> um, you know, I could, could maybe do that, be fine. And then somebody came to me and sort of said, oh, you didn't get to speak to to Richard Jameson, who turned out to be my PhD supervisor. He's, he's now retired because uh, he was away on the interview day. You should go talk to him. And he told me about these jupiter-sized things that weren't quite stars and they weren't quite planets and they had clouds and weather and all and i yeah i I was just sold at that point i was like yeah fine (laughs) these sound amazing and then as i was coming towards the end of my phd the first one of these white dwarf brown dwarf binaries was discovered by um some people in, in, in my department and, and people elsewhere. So Max Dillatel is, is the reference. It's 2006. I was coming to the end of my PhD. And they they published this and it was sort of, it was it was interesting and it was on the way to suggesting there could be planets around white dwarfs. This was sort of why it was it was interesting at the time. And so the, this, this object had survived and it wasn't interacting unlike a cataclysmic variable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was sort of, where the paper ended and I just really wanted to know what happened to the brown dwarf how the brown dwarf was being affected by this how did, how did the brown dwarf feel about this that's a star of a Pixar <laughs> movie isn't it it's been through a lot a lot of associated trauma it's now being roasted you know every 116 minutes <laughs> <laughs> but it, again it was it was it was the clouds maybe I'm a I'm a closet cloud yes, person that's but right. yeah it was it was the clouds again you know if- clouds span all of our research and we're all interested and frustrated by clouds I think <laughs> This is, true. <laughs> this is true i, I think yeah. it, i think it was definitely the the clouds what happens to the clouds you know if brown dwarfs are variable and have weather well what happens if you tidally lock one and then you know throw all this uv at one side is is there other photochemistry or the aurora what does it do so yeah that was that was sort of what captured me and it probably helped that i'd done some as part of my PhD, I'd done mainly brown dwarf research, but I'd also done some white dwarf stuff as well. So mm-hmm. I could sort of come at the systems from both sides, which I think helped in terms of um, getting interested in, in the science and figuring out what was going on. Well, uh, I, I guess we could we could kind of look to the future now. Um, and you're involved with the with the UK Science Working Group for the Vera Rubin Observatory, formerly LS, uh, LSST, uh, that's yeah. currently under construction in Chile. Um, so, how do you think this these new generation of these upcoming telescopes, uh, these ground based observatories, will be able to you know, kind of push the limits of what you can 
uh, do with respect to you know brown dwarfs and, and white dwarfs. So in terms of LSST, I am the UK person of contact for variable stars. Um, and realistically, for, for these sort of systems, LSST is going to identify objects that are variable, but probably not do a huge amount more. The cadence where it's sort of doing a, a few observations and then returning a few nights later is not going to help in terms of detecting variability in the same way that something like Tess or Kepler that is staring at a patch of sky is going to do. However, as we discovered with, with Kepler, a couple of my radiative brand walls were discovered that way. It has a 30-ish minute cadence. It can't pick up the eclipses with any sort of, it picks them up, but it can't tell you what it is with any reliability. But that's all you need to then be able to go after it with a, a dedicated telescope. So would it be fair to say that there isn't really a dedicated brown dwarf survey out there and you have to kind of piggyback off a lot of these planet surveys? Yes, that I would I would say, I would say that that, that is <laughs> that is true. No, I would say I would say that's true and it's certainly the case if you look at the demographics of the the brown dwarfs orbiting main sequence stars the close ones they're basically all around FGK stars because this is where the hot Jupiter planets searches have have come from, you know, wasps found a couple, kelp found one, um I'm trying to think who else. There's a f- maybe about four from Tess, a couple of KOIs. You know, there's, mm. yeah. You would think in terms of demographics from a binary star formation, it would be more likely that these brown dwarfs would form around very late M dwarfs where the mass difference is smaller. But at the moment, we don't have any... Um, we don't have any surveys that are surveying late M dwarfs uh, to the magnitudes that you need. To the magnitudes that you need, yeah. So, so TESS and NGTS, which I'm part of, will pick up the odd one, but going down to sort of I-ish of fifteen, sixteen. Yeah, you're mainly bottoming out at the M fives, maybe an M six if you're lucky, or a very close late M dwarf. So is Ariel going to help out with this? Or other, you know, upcoming on-orbit telescopes of the next generation, will they be able to contribute a little bit more? So Ariel, I think, is going to do a lot in terms of spectra in the, what I would call the mid-infrared. So from sort of two microns out to five, Ariel has the capability to be able to observe, I think depending on, on their current limits, I think it's about 50 nearby brown dwarfs. So if we wanted a, for instance, sort of a, a library of standards in the same way we have for the specs library for brown dwarfs at the moment, then Ariel will be fantastic for that. And this is perhaps a project that James, you know, people are not going to be able to get time on James Webb to do. You know, if you just want a standard L to T dwarf, um, library, are you going to be able to do that with James Webb? I, I don't, I don't know due to the competitiveness, but something like Ariel will be able to do that, and because it's primarily an exoplanet mission, it's going to be able to fit these observations in between waiting for transits of other stuff, which means it's extremely useful, is extremely handy. There's also um, Sphere X, which is a NASA mission, which is going to do something similar. I think, which is going to do maybe three of, it's going to keep returning to the same areas of sky and get repeat spectra, but again, sort of low resolution up to about four and a half microns. 
So for for looking at spectra and perhaps looking at how spectra have changed when you return a few months later, particularly for objects where we know they're variable due to due to cloud movement, this could be really interesting. We yeah we've had to to talk about this a lot with Ariel to do with the pointing because it's designed for exoplanets. So there's been a lot of discussion about how. You can't point on something that's 15th magnitude. I think we've, we've decided that we're going to offset. We're going to point on something brighter and offset. Exactly, exactly as you would from the ground. I mean, you have to do that with uh, with bright objects with James Webb, which is the yeah. interesting opposite way around, right? Yes. I want to change tacks a little bit and talk about the journey that you've gone through in academia to get here, because your journey to getting the Ennis Rutherford Fellowship was not... Not always an easy one, I know. Uh, and I think it's really important. And a lot of our, our viewers like to hear on the show the different journeys people have taken. Um, would you mind taking us through that a little bit, that route that you, you did to get to, to where you are now? No, not at all. So I have been at Leicester my whole my whole life. I'm not from Leicester, but you know, I came came here as an undergraduate and I, I stayed and did a PhD with, with Richard Jameson on Brown Dwarfs. And I, somebody then left as I finished my PhD. So I, I took over the last two years of their then rolling grant, as it was at the time, um, postdoc position for SCFC. And towards the end of that, somebody in, in my department became uh, head of college and said, OK, I'll, I'll take the role. We just invented colleges. This was a, a new thing for us at the time. And said, I'll take the role, but I want a postdoc so I don't you know, I don't want to be a manager. I don't want to lose my research career. I would like a postdoc. And his term was for five years. So that was what the postdoc term was, which, you know, is incredibly, incredibly lucky. For a Brit- yeah, especially for exactly. a British one. Yeah. I know. Yeah. So I had this, this position and I, I was allowed to do 30% of my own research. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the time was to be filled with working on hot white dwarfs which I did. This was where I learned to use stuff from Hubble. And then other things that were going on. So this sort of included um, getting involved in writing mission proposals. So I was was writing small mission proposals for some of the ESA calls, which was quite interesting Mm. and sort of got me involved in planning in a in a different way and juggling sort of mass budgets and all the stuff that you don't necessarily think of when you use the telescope but has to be thought of when you're trying to build the telescope yeah so yeah and I I discovered actually I quite liked that sort of juggling the the responsibilities editing the document so it was a a coherent voice making sure everything fit with the rules etc i'm making myself sound terribly anally retentive right now but uh (laughs) this sort of stuff some of the most important things that happen i really and i and i i really enjoyed doing that i have i don't say i have a short attention span but i like variety in my Mm -hmm. my work so that really really suited me and towards the end of end of the term, um, my my PI renewed as as head of college, and I went on uh, maternity leave. And when I came back, they sort of changed things somewhat, and were like, "Okay, well, what what's going to happen now is your PI is taking over as um, head of the space park that Leicester is going to build, oh, yeah. and we're going to create a a research institute around what will happen at this space park." 
um, which was primarily for, for Earth observation and sort of space instrumentation stuff, but also some astrophysics. And, you know, we're going to move your role sideways to work on this. So I became uh, science support for um, this, this Leicester Institute. I had the world's most ridiculous email signature for a very long while. And that involved doing basically everything I had been doing before, only the project management side of stuff now involved doing things like looking at the budgets for the Institute, working out how university finances work, which is interesting. (laughs) So many more skills that so many people so need. So many more skills. Learning how to use like the university's costing software. Oh, um, I can't imagine it's very user-friendly for some reason. They never tend no, to be. <laughs> but it's, it's mainly universal. Most universities use the same software. So, you know, although our costing bit is our own, the, the whole thing is run by everybody else. And also a lot of businesses use it. So it's, you know, the ultimate in transferable skills. (laughs) But this this sort of stuff taught me a lot about how the university works, how the finances work, and and how things are decided at higher levels. I ended up sitting on a couple of city university committees at the the same time. And yeah, that was eye opening. But it now means that I know an awful lot of people who know how to get an awful lot of things done which is which is helpful but again that was that was that was interesting i was sort of almost given free reign to set up competitions for you know phd students we're going to offer six phd students okay how do we decide how we split them across um all the themes and stuff and that was basically you know left to me to suggest how we how we did that and how we graded projects and decided what we were going to do and that sort of stuff so that was very enjoyable and then I had, I think, two years left on my contract and I went on maternity leave again. And I was determined second time on maternity leave I was going to take it easy. Having first time round, I'd been very much sort of, no, I'm not giving up my career. I've worked hard for this. I'm, you know, I'm going to keep working as much as I can. Second time I was like, no, no, I know I can do this. I'm chilling out. It's going to be fine. It's not going to be a problem. And then when my baby was a month old, I got an email that said, oh, congratulations, we'd love you to come for an Ernest Rutherford interview. And I was just like, really? This year? You had to pick <laughs> this year? I've had, I, you know, I don't know how many years, probably by this point, certainly getting on for eight or nine years of unsuccessful applications where I'd never had an interview, ever. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, suddenly the, the year I have a, a four-week-old baby, they're like, yeah, I'll come for an interview. <laughs> so, Yes. So I did. I, I took the baby down. My husband came with me. Uh, she was sick in SDFC's canteen. Sorry about that. <laughs> and uh, SDFC were awesome. Not about the sick, but um, about <laughs> yeah. They they set us up with a room where where I could feed her, and they were they were really accommodating. They were fantastic. It's great to hear. Yeah, yeah. So we we went down. And I had the interview, and I I then you know eventually heard back, and they sort of went, Nah, sorry, um, not this time. And part of me was sort of like, I'm okay with this because I felt the interview went well. And in a way, having a baby meant that I didn't have to stress about it. No one was going to turn around to me and say, oh, goodness, you know, you made such a bad job of that interview with your Mm -hmm. eight week old baby. You know, no one was ever going to say that. So it really did sort of take the pressure off a little. Um, But then in June, they got back to me and basically said, 
we're taking you off the reserve list. Do you do you want a place? So that happened, and I deferred until the end of my maternity leave. You can defer these things for up to six months. Mm-hmm. So I, instead of starting in the October, I deferred it and started in the January when I returned from maternity leave. So yeah, I'm now in my second year. Great. Well, I'm very, very glad to hear that you got that. And that's a five-year position, isn't it? It's a five-year, five-year yeah. position, yeah. Nice. That's the holy grail in, in science. Well, unless you get like a, a, a proper, you know, full-time contract, but that's that's fantastic. Yeah, it, in yeah. a way it is. I don't know whether I would have had as much confidence in saying, yes, I want to start a family if I'd been on a three-year contract. Because, you know, if you think you're going to take a year out, in the, in the end I took six months with each of my children and then returned while my husband took three or four months. And then we either juggled the last bit um, it, it my, my husband's also an academic, so it depended on his teaching schedule. With my my eldest, who was born in June, so there wasn't a problem because we had the, we had the summer break. But with my my youngest, when my husband finished his break, it was about October, and that's his busiest teaching term. So I had I you know there wasn't any option of working part time. I had to take the rest of it off, which was fine. But yeah, I don't know if I'd have been so happy or confident to do it if I'd have been in, you know, a, a, a series of three-year positions. That's that's hard. Yeah, it doesn't give you that that sense of security for for any, you know, for anything really. To I, I'd see that it's definitely affected my my outlook. You know, making friends and and building relationships. You know, definitely affected by these short-term contracts. And I think that's probably yeah. something that that we can all relate to, right? Yeah, it's it's really it's really hard. It's in a way it's one of the best and the worst things about the job. You're continually mm. meeting new people, which is great and you you know whether it's new undergraduates or new PhD students. Um but yeah, even at that level you're still losing people on a on a 3 or 4 year year cycle and it's it's very easy to lose touch as well, particularly with people who perhaps you get close within your institute, but then they go away and work in a different field. So it's not even like you're coming across them at, at conferences or anything either. Do you see any any like changes that we could make in academia that could remedy that problem and all of the other problems that mean that it's you know not not fair and not not nice for people going through? How can we fix it all? Sarah? Yeah, yeah, of course. I have all the answers here. <laughs> yeah. So I think I think two major things I would change is I would I'm really pleased to see the changes with telescope proposing where things are becoming more anonymous and I think it has been shown that in particular women and and people of ethnic minorities do miss out you know you and you see it to some degree with with papers and things where people get sent stuff to review and there's sort of a, oh, you know, I don't really know that institute very much. So, you know, maybe I need to pay a bit more attention. And, and it's not, you know, there aren't that many jobs and the UK system doesn't really have the diversity of universities that, for instance, somewhere like the US does, you know, where perhaps mm. you're getting excellent researchers who, for personal reasons or other reasons, have chosen to work at liberal art colleges. So, no, you might not have heard of their university, but it doesn't mean you need to scrutinize their science more carefully. And I think that the whole double-blind thing that's been brought in is is excellent yeah. for for trying to reduce this. You know, for things like fellowships, it still can't really be done. I don't know how 
because so much of it's about the person. It's about, yeah, yeah. you're selecting a person. It's, it's one of the... I, I love being on proposal panels and I love, you know, going through those things. But as soon as you get to the point where you're scrutinising based on the person, I, th- I find it just a horrible experience. It is. Or, or the referee is the other one. Who's Who was the referee? You know, oh, they've got a reference from so-and-so. Yeah, you know, this sort of thing, or you know, or or you have to sit and read referee reports and then sort of wonder about, okay, well, if the referee's blah, then do I need to one, you know, how do I adjust for that personal that referee's personal, but and this sort of thing, yeah, I I think the more you can do double blind, the better. Yeah. But yeah, I think fellowships are, are really hard with that, short of separating things into a sort of a personal statement and a science case. But even yeah. then, writing the science case in a third-person way is is perhaps not the best way of doing it. So I don't have the answers, but I do wish more things. <laughs> I do wish more things sure. would go go double blind. So I, I did a panel earlier this year where things were not double blind, but I think they will be in future. And I'm, you know, it's good to see. My other thing I change would be in the university system in general would be to try to equip people better. At the moment, I think particularly in the UK, there's an awful lot of hiring people because of their research excellence, which is amazing. But then you get dumped in at the deep end and, you know, please go and teach umpteen courses and deal with your students sympathetically and act and, you know, help people with poor mental health, act as a good personal tutor, manage a group. And quite often, none of this training is provided. No, no, it is most certainly not. But equally, people who have that expertise are perhaps not regarded as highly because they don't have the research record because they've yep. done all the other stuff. And I think we need to find a happy medium somewhere where perhaps people who are, are teaching focused are not looked down on by the research people. I mean, at the end of the day, you're not doing any teaching somebody else is doing your teaching so why are you looking down on them for having inferior research you know yeah Yeah, they're essentially doing you a favor here um and you know i think universities have got better but i think there's a lot of still still playing catch up and everybody you know the ref takes precedence over the tef in the uk these are our, our research excellence and teaching excellence frameworks and yeah, the the research still rules over the you know the other stuff, and I I don't think that's right. Diversity makes us stronger. We need a more diverse workforce, not a you know not a less diverse workforce. Yeah, it's hard. I you know I talked to a colleague of mine about this, and essentially, if you get you know if if you are awesome enough to get a big grant something like an uh, an ELC, then you are you're suddenly managing anywhere between three to five people, you know, and you maybe have to put your personal research on hold to do that, but you were hired for the grant based on your personal research. And I think that can be hard to come to terms with. Yeah. And to get your head around. I've seen that happen with a lot of people and it yeah. just it it takes time to get into that that headspace that is needed and to understand how that works. Yeah. And also maybe that you've 
you've essentially got everything you wanted, but it didn't necessarily work out the way you thought it might in terms of, you know, you got, you got the money, you got the group and it's fantastic. But at the end of the day, you're not actually doing the thing you personally love as much anymore because yeah. you suddenly have this, almost this family that you now have to look after and are responsible for. Mm. And I think, I think we perhaps brush that under the carpet a bit because, you know, if, if, if you get one of these grants, you are you're essentially winning, right? You've 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 got everything. So why why would we need to help you? We need to help the people who who are writing the grants, and I I don't necessarily think that's that's the case. Has a uh, has becoming a mum and during all of this and and being a manager has that really really helped you to kind of understand the perspective that of different people within within academia a little bit more? I think so. Yeah, I think it's it's certainly given me a much broader outlook as to how as to how things work and what other people do and particularly what people in admin roles do and how important that is. You know, sometimes I get the impression that people can be very sort of, oh, you know, the admin, the not causing me trouble, but you know, oh, they're slow, slow with it. They haven't booked my travel. You know, they're there to book the travel and sign off your expenses, and that's, you know, that they they have this hugely important role and they do so much for us that are, I think, are quite often very underappreciated by, by academics. Yeah. And you know, there are our our college finance manager is amazing you know, if I ever need to know anything about how what form I need to fill in for anything yeah no she's yeah she's she's got it all she saw it yep I've got I, I first thing I did I went and found those people because they're the ones that you need to know and they're the ones you need to be kind to we just need Absolutely. to be kinder to each other you find the IT person you find the admin and you make friends with them and then everything is easier it's so much easier yeah absolutely it was it was one of my new year's resolutions um earlier this year was to complain less and thank people more it sounds a bit cheesy but I sort of I, I looked at you know everything is now done by please evaluate what happened please evaluate our our forms and stuff and I realized that I perhaps was only filling in the form when I was really annoyed that something hadn't gone my way mm-hmm. you know oh this piece of software couldn't be installed because I had to fill a form out in triplicate or something and I didn't realize that when people were going out of their way to bring me up a monitor or to help me move office and this sort of stuff. I wasn't filling the form in to say, you know, these people yeah. really went out of their way to help me. It's kind of a complaint bias, right? You're only, when you get infused enough to complain, that's it's, when it's you fill a bit, out the form. It's, it's like reading like TripAdvisor yeah. reviews, isn't it? Everybody complains and no one ever says, yeah. yeah. So I, I had a great time. Yeah. yeah. So I, I tried to make more of an effort um, this year in particular to, to sort of thank the people that that really go out of their way and sometimes you don't realize you know you sit on a panel the admin person for the panel they're dealing with goodness knows how many hundreds of people Mm -hmm. you know booking for hotels and planes and stuff and it's just like geez you know yeah they absolutely deserve to be thanked because they're doing this you know this enormous job well we were talking about um, new year's resolutions and now the beginning of this year feels like five years ago um, yes. you know things have been changing pretty rapidly and you know we're, we're still in coronavirus lockdown uh, in our various places across the world so 
Uh, on a bit of a side, what are you doing to keep yourself sane, to keep your kiddies entertained? Any tips that you can share with uh, with other <laughs> astro parents, maybe, to, um, uh, to remain sane during this time? Oh, I guess don't expect too much of yourself. There's been a lot of this on, on Twitter and people sort of saying, yeah. oh, it's great, trapped at home. Now's the time to oh, write those God, papers. No. She's like, no, oh, yeah. you know, no. Take, take it easy and do what you need to do. So my husband and I are sort of swapping for an hour on, an hour off at the moment. We found a schedule for the schooling bit where my kids are currently currently off school, but they'll be back on, well, my eldest will be back on Monday. My littlest is two, so she's she doesn't care. She just thinks it's great because, like, everyone's at home. <laughs> yeah. She thinks it's amazing. Exactly. But, yeah, a, sh- a schedule helps him. So we, we sort of, and we, we mix it up a bit. And his school have been awesome sending through stuff. And he, he quite enjoys being able to do stuff on mummy's laptop for his. There's quite, they have quite a lot of sort of interactive drawing things they want him to do and, it's all it's all good it's all skills and we read a bit we skype family every day we skype my family and we skype my husband's family every day and that's that's nice it gives him an opportunity to do things like do his reading books and and stuff with with somebody else and we do the stuff that we used to do more when i was at home yeah when when i was at home permanently so i'm i'm at home one day a week as it is because i have a flexible working arrangement i sort of make up my time in the evenings so, you know, he's not in after school club. He's only in after school club two days a week and we have sort of mm-hmm. earlier pickups the other days. But, you know, we bake, we get him involved in in doing the the dinner. My my littlest comes along, she comes dragging her chair, and she climbs up going, I help too, Mama, I help. And uh <laughs> inevitably gets covered in whatever it is we're doing. I was just gonna say, does she help? Yeah, it's usually no, not no. helping. No, too much. no, that's not how that works. <laughs> But the key is to get them get them trained early, right? She's stubborn. My my littlest is an absolute force of nature. So yeah, it's uh, <laughs> difficult. But yeah, we we've planted seeds, and we have lo- we have, we're, we're very lucky in that we have a garden, and the weather's been good, and the kids are quite outdoor related kids. So we can we spend a lot of time in the garden. We've been my eldest at an age where he can now so he's been writing sort of four line letters to his grandparents and we can walk to the nearest post box which is at the bottom of the road and that sort of stuff but i think the the biggest one is to not expect too much of yourself you know don't think of all the things you could be doing you know just take it one day at a time and i you know i I run, which gives me my sort of personal space that I don't get at get at home, and sort of gives yeah. me um, sort of a little mental space as well. But even even with that, I've seen so some of the apps that I use to run with, and there's a lot of just do what you feel. Don't be thinking again. This is a great time to be breaking records and pushing your distance and stuff no no you know don't overdo it just do what feels right at the time you know and i think that's basically i think that's all all we can do at the moment and check in with each other regularly enough to to make sure everyone's okay i mean i realize i'm exceptionally lucky my family so far have been well we're all together and, you know, we're, we're in a house with enough space, which is, you know, just so lucky. 
Well, on the note of checking in with everybody, uh, let us know how you guys are doing, our listeners, via our Twitter at exo underscore cast. And a massive thank you to Sarah for that uh, and answering all of our questions uh, about all of the science and all of things uh, in life and life in academia. So thank you so much for that. But it's time. It's time to adopt a new planet into <laughs> the Exocast family. And as always, it is our guest who is allowed to do such a privilege so what have you adopted for us i have adopted kelt 1b which is potentially not a planet uh-huh uh-huh i thought this would happen yeah yeah well it was it was sort of inevitable i see other people have put things like titan in there so i don't yep. feel too yeah. um <laughs> Too uh, out on a limb. Yeah, so Kelt 1B is a low-ish mass brown dwarf, maybe about 27 Jupiters, orbiting a F star. And it's perhaps the best studied irradiated brown dwarf in terms of direct comparisons with hot Jupiters. Because it, it is orbiting a main sequence star. And there are spits of phase curves, and yeah, there's really a lot of fantastic data and when it when it comes to observing these things with James Webb, this one obviously has to be sort of top of the list in terms of what you'd what you'd go after, I think. Very nice. Well I think uh we will welcome Kelt One B with open arms into our very eclectic family of <laughs> planets uh, with quote marks around it now. Planets with quote marks, yeah. Yeah, we've got <laughs> moons and, uh, you know, as of yet, undiscovered planets. So I, I think that that's a great choice, a great addition. Yeah. Excellent choice. Uh, and yeah. we will make sure that that is put up there. Good, good. But thank you again for coming on the show. That's all right. So uh, I'll thank uh, Sarah again for joining us and answering all of our, our questions. Um, also, please don't forget to look out for our other two episodes this month, uh, in which we uh, discuss the topic, can we ever image the surface of an exoplanet, and also round up all this month's news. Uh, but for now, that's everything from uh, myself, Hannah and Hugh, and Sarah. So thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Exocast. I have exoplanets. This podcast was brought to you by the Exocast team. Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Hugh Osborne, the Test K-Ops Fellow at MIT and the University of Bern. And Andrew Rushby, a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Thanks for listening.